to you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20, reading through the end of the chapter. My son, keep your father's commandment. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. But a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor. His disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious. And he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. And he will refuse, though you multiply gifts. My parents uh, just came up to visit this past week, and they're staying for a few weeks to watch the dogs. I fly out to the Midwest. But uh, when I return, the plan is for us to go up the Oregon coast. One of the things my mom loves to see more than just about anything are lighthouses. I remember when I lived in Michigan, that's one of the things that we would do when she would come up and we would go and, and look at the lighthouses along Lake Michigan. It's surprising the number of shipwrecks that you uh, read about hundreds of shipwrecks in Lake Michigan alone. So many because of the lack of lighthouses. What is it that a lighthouse does? If you drive out to Newport, you see one just, just north uh, of uh, turning onto that main road. Uh, right overlooking the cliffs. A lighthouse, of course, warns the ships of the rocks below that are hidden in the darkness. Those dar- those rocks and um, the cliffs that might be hidden by fog. Uh, the purpose of the light is to illuminate one's path they- that there might not be a shipwreck. And that is the imagery that we see here in this passage this evening, that God gives wisdom to his people, wisdom that serves as a light uh, to illuminate those dark paths that we might not have our faith made and turned into a shipwreck. One of the more uh, um, dangerous problems that plague society, just look at Hollywood or uh, read uh, or you know watch, read the the newspaper or the celebrity columns or watch any type of reality TV show or just listen to the stories of your neighbors and friends is the perpetual problem 
of infidelity. And it's something that destroys one's faith. It is something that can destroy a marriage and a household. Nearly impossible in so many ways to recover. And here our Savior speaks to his church through his word to give us the warning that we might be kept safe from disaster. There's three distinct sections I'd like to take this in. First, we'll see verses 20 to 24. We can simply call it kept. We'll see why in a few moments. Secondly, verses 25 to 26, we can call captured. And finally, verses 27 to 35, that of the consequences. So kept, captured, and the consequences. This particular passage opens up with what seems to be a repeated theme, a repeated opening uh, way. You see this as the opening of chapter 3. Again, when we get to chapter 7, there is this warning, this direct address from the king to his son, the prince who is about to sit on the throne, to listen to parental wisdom. This becoming the divine means of protection. This is something we considered a few months back when we were in Proverbs chapter 3. One of the ways in which God protects his people is through wisdom. You see this throughout the Proverbs. You see it in Jude. You see it in so many places in Scripture. The idea of being kept by keeping. Here, the voice of your parents, listen to my instruction, Solomon says to his son, quite literally, listen to my Torah, echoing the words of the Shema Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. You will bind these words on your heart. Use them as frontlets, uh, as, as a bandana, as it were, around your head here. You wear it as a necklace around your neck. Keep it close to you. This is something that will protect you, not as a magic talisman, but rather hiding this word deep in your heart will keep you from sin and therefore keep you from sudden destruction that attends certain sins. Here, by keeping Torah, here, by keeping wisdom, you will be kept. And you will be kept by keeping here he begins to spell out this general truth once again. You see that here in verses 22 and 23, that by keeping God's word, by keeping and heeding the voice of the king, you will be kept at all times. Notice those times that are spelled out when you lie down, when you awake, when you are walking Every facet, every day of the life, there is no moment where wisdom will not guard you if you but heed wisdom's counsel. We read about through Scripture and also our confession of faith how God has appointed secondary means as something to protect us. Let's say you are driving down the interstate. What folly it is to say, oh, well, God has ordained all things. Therefore, I can drive 95 miles an hour on the left side of the road without wearing a seatbelt. That's not wisdom. That is not trust. That is folly. Why? Because God has established particular means to protect us, like following the road signs and wearing a seatbelt. In the same vein, 
so too has God given us moral laws and instruction and wisdom as that secondary means by which He protects us. And here, Solomon speaks of those general truths that if you keep these instructions, they will serve you as a light in dark places. Even when you're in the midst of the dark fog of temptation, and as we'll see in a few moments, he begins to speak of sexual temptation, God's Word will serve as a light to keep you from making your faith a shipwreck on those hidden dangers that when you are caught in the throes of passion and when your hormones are raging, you are likely not able or willing to see. Anyone who has been swept up in the thick of sensuality or lust or has had uh, their fidelity tested knows how difficult this is when one's own sinful passions are kind of inflamed and they begin sending one's moral compass spinning around and about where you're not able to tell what is up, what is down. You're not able to discern where true north lies anymore. Where the passions, the roaring waves of the sea have hidden underneath it those coral reefs that will make your faith a shipwreck. Here, God's Word is spoken of as a light and as a lamp uh, that will expose those dangers. Not so that you can navigate the waters of sexual temptation uh, uh, more uh, with, with greater wisdom, well, like, well, if I just tread more carefully, then perhaps I will be safe. I remember listening to a, uh, back then, this is years ago, a famous Christian musician saying that he loved going to Amsterdam and walking down particular streets at night, not because he planned to sin by walking down those streets, but because he said, sometimes it's fun just to be tempted. You think how dangerous a statement that is to think, oh, if I at least know what's going on, I can navigate the rocky terrain. That is not what God's word is saying here. The, 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 the lighthouse functions as a beacon to say, don't come this particular direction. Here is a disaster. Go in that way. You think of what Paul says to the church of Corinth when it comes to sexual immorality. He doesn't say tread lightly. What does he say? He says, fly, you fool. It's like Gandalf in the mines of Moria. Run as fast as you can. And this is the same counsel that Solomon gives to his son. That here is a light that exposes the darkness and the snares that lie hidden underneath the raging powers of one's own passionate and sinful heart. It gives us life even when it reproves us, even when the discipline stings. Perhaps uh, you are thinking back to an incident when you yourself were a teenager and you got caught doing something you were not supposed to do and your parents reproved you or rebuked you and perhaps there was a brief moment of shame. Perhaps you did not like the fact that you were being penalized or disciplined or grounded or having the keys to your car taken away. And yet looking back, don't you think, I'm so glad my parents did that for me. What wisdom. That's what wisdom is here for us. It is 
our great benefactor, it is our great good, even when it does not feel like a great good. Isn't that what the author of Hebrews says in quoting Proverbs 3? Discipline doesn't feel good when, when you're in the throes of discipline. It never feels good getting a spanking. And yet it is for your good. And it is much better to be disciplined for doing wrong than not to be disciplined at all and have your life led into ruin. Well, now that Solomon speaks of the general truth that wisdom affords, the disciplinary actions and the training that the counsel, the Torah of one's parents brings, he begins to make specific application. If you recall in Proverbs chapter 2, he says that these Proverbs are given to warn us from two distinct categories of people. And these are two categories of people we see ourselves running into over and over again, not just in the book of Proverbs, but also in the streets in our own daily lives. On the one hand, you have the perverse man, the man who keeps trying to invite you to join him in his folly. The man who wants you to join the gang, as it were. Uh, the one who wants you to vandalize or steal and get swept up in uh, the passion and joy of being a part of a, a group of friends whose, whose moral fortitude is less than ideal. And whose corrupt habits will lead you astray and corrupt your morals. Yet the second category is not simply that of the perverse man, but also the seductress, the forbidden woman. You see that here in verse 24. Again, that word there to preserve, it's the same word that we've seen several times in this passage already. The one who has been given to guard and to keep you. Wisdom is given to protect you from the evil woman. Quite literally, the forbidden woman. And so we have to stop and ask, what makes her so forbidden? Well, very simply put, she's forbidden because she is not yours. Here he speaks of the nature of adultery. Here we're getting to the heart of the Tenth Commandment. What does the Tenth Commandment say? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Why? Because she is not yours. There are things that are good. There are things that are bad. There are things that the Lord has given us for our enjoyment that can be enjoyed too much or not enough. Right? There are, there are inordinate loves that we have that are out of Proportion, but there are certain things that are also out of bounds, that by their very nature are prohibited. And another man's wife is already prohibited. There is no, there is no feasible place in this universe where it is okay for you to begin thinking about how it's okay to be with another man's wife. Here the specific application is on the married woman, a woman who is not your wife. And yet, notice how quickly Solomon goes to the root. How do you protect yourself from the forbidden woman? That married woman who even tries to seduce you with her eyelashes. The woman who with her smooth tongue tries to woo you at the bar or at the restaurant one night. Well, here Solomon gets to the root of the matter quite quickly. It's a question of desire. 
Again, this is nothing new that we haven't already seen. You remember in chapter 4, Solomon had said that above all things, you are to guard your heart. And here he gives specific application on what it looks like to guard your heart from the loose woman. From the woman who seeks to lead you astray. A woman whose tongue is her weapon. A woman whose eyelashes are her sword and arrows. I think it leads to a very practical question for us as we consider this practical wisdom. How do I not fall prey to the seductress? If I am to be kept by wisdom, how ought I not? How ought I to avoid capture by the forbidden woman? And that leads us to verses 25 and 26. Look at that. He doesn't simply say, well, just keep your distance. You know, smile and say your pleasantry. No, look what it, he says here. He says, do not even desire her beauty in, her, in your heart. It gets to the question of our own love. See, that is where sin begins. You think of James chapter 1. Sin gives, gives birth to death. Where does it begin? It gives place. It begins in the heart. That's why John Owen in his book, The Mortification of Sin, it says, He who does not trample under, over the bellies of his own lust will never see victory in seeing sin mortified. Uh, the, the battle for sexual temptation begins, and in many ways ends, with one's own desires. Where are you looking late at night? Where do your eyes linger? Where does your heart travel even when your eyes are closed? This is a matter of the heart. This is where the warfare takes place. It does not take place, uh, you know, on um, on an open battlefield. It could take place in the quiet of your own heart when you're surrounded by 20 people or when you're in a bedroom all by yourself. Anyone who has ever felt the strength of lust knows he must always be on guard against the slightest temptation. How quickly can the ember's flame of lust be fanned into a forest fire? And before you know it, you are overtaken. And it is suffocating. Notice the manner by which the warfare takes place. The manner by which one, uh, a man is captured. There are both verbal and nonverbal forms of seduction that the man is warned against. Her eyelids, right, the glance, the, the batting of the eyes, as well as the smooth tongue. And we'll see the seductress in chapter 7 more as she continues to try to woo away the man who lacks sense from the path of wisdom down to the gates of hell itself. We see here the command given here in verse 25 and 26. Do not let her eyelids capture you. Oh, they can be like a tractor beam. Draw you in. I think of the Millennium Falcon with the Death Star in the original Star Wars movie. The fight begins with the first glance. The question is, where does your imagination run? And what are you doing to, to, to fight it off at the very beginning? Here, Solomon begins to make this argument from what we call the lesser to the greater as he compares two different types of sexual immorality. You see that here in verse 26. He begins to talk about the prostitute. 
And he contrasts the prostitute with the adulteress. It's an interesting contrast. And he's not making the argument here that prostitution is somehow more acceptable than adultery. That's not the point here. But he says, consider the prostitute. What is the cost for a prostitute? It's just a loaf of bread. Now, is prostitution bad? You better believe it. How much does it cost a man for a prostitute? He says it's a loaf of bread. Well, if you think prostitution is bad, what does it cost a man who commits adultery? It costs a man his very life. You you notice the contrast that what we call that argument from the lesser to the greater that's transpiring here. The adulteress here is described as the huntress. Thus, the batting eyelashes are the, the shiny lure on a fishing string. It is the bait that is laid to capture the beast. Here, the warning regards the nature of adultery. It is of a greater danger in one sense than prostitution itself. Because you have to reckon now with the jealous husband, if ever he is to find out. And rest assured, he will find out. It leads to the consequences we see here now in verses 27 to 35. Yet again, another analogy is brought forth. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? I remember when I was in college, I thought one night it would be cool to try smoking. I was really tired and I fell asleep with a cigarette in my mouth. And guess what happened? The ash fell on my shirt and my shirt began to catch on fire. Friends who had to slapping a towel on me. It hurt. You see that analogy here. A man who carries a fire next to his chest, will he not be burned? The point here, the man, again, another analogy, a man, if he if he walks on hot coals, aren't not his feet going to be burned? It kind of makes sense, right? For those of you who are parents. You tell your kids, don't touch the hot stove. Why? Because if you touch the hot stove, your hands are going to be burned. It's just basic science. I remember when I was a kid, I was playing. My my folks had a bunch of friends over and they had a a barbecue going on. Me and some friends decided to play tag. And what did we make as home base? The barbecue pit. It's the only time I've ever come in first place. As I threw my hands on the barbecue pit and, and, and screamed, I win! And then had to spend the next few hours with my hands in, in an ice bath because I had burned both of my hands. It's real smart, Charles. Real smart. But yet that analogy is set forth here, isn't it? Just as certain as it is for a man who, who puts fire to his chest, so to the man who sleeps with a married woman, it is certain that you too will be burned. The consequences are inevitable. And yet here there is an intimation that the burning that Solomon has in mind is not just a physical burning. This language, he shall not remain blameless, echoes those Old Testament covenantal promises of divine judgment. Remember Paul's own language to Corinth, it is better to marry than to burn. Do not be deceived, the sexually immoral will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Revelation, those who stand outside the kingdom to burn in the fires of hell include the sexually 
immoral. Verse 32, here we see the echo again. The man who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys quite literally his very soul. Once again, we are led with another argument from the lesser to the greater. As now he compares not the prostitute with the adulteress, but now he compares and contrasts the thief with the adulterer. You think about a thief who steals a loaf of bread. I've mentioned it before. One of my favorite musicals is Les Miserables. Second only to the Blues Brothers. But in Les Miserables, you have the protagonist who is sent to a uh, prison to work 19 years of hard labor. What is the crime he had committed? He had stolen a loaf of bread because he was hungry. And we see here what sympathy this elicits if a man is hungry and he steals a loaf of bread. Don't you feel sorry for him? And yet if he is caught, is he not required to pay back what he has stolen and make restitution even more than he has stolen? He is certainly must make restitution, even if you feel sorry for him because he has broken the law. Well, if that is so certain for a thief, how much more is it certain for the adulterer for whom nobody finds any sympathy? There is no situation where one can look and go, you know what? I feel really sorry for that guy because he decided to commit adultery with another man's wife. You might feel sorry for a man because he stole a loaf of bread because he was hungry. There is no scenario where you can feel sorry for a man for humiliating another woman's husband for having violated the trust that is broken when adultery is consummated. That adulterer lacks sense, it says here in verse 32. Quite literally, he lacks heart, is what the Hebrew says. Here's a man who is unable to keep his passions under control. They have set his life, his course of life on fire, and it leads to the very destruction of his soul. And so the community around him lacks sympathy. Sure, they might sympathize with the thief, but not the adulterer. Here, the adulterer inherits wounds and shame. He has become a disgrace to the community, to the world around him. And here we find a sin that says will not be blotted out. Here's a man who has to wear, as it were, the scarlet letter on his chest the rest of his days. Here is a man where everybody looks as he walks down the street and says, here's a man who has violated the trust of his neighbor. Even if he survives uh, the rage of the cuckold. Nobody will ever trust him ever again. And that is the ultimate consequence. I shouldn't say the ultimate, the ultimate physical consequence, because he doesn't have to simply worry about paying a fine in the local courts or buying a couple extra loaves of bread to make restitution. Here he is confronted with the burning fury of the married woman's husband. You steal a loaf of bread that in one sense is easily restored. But how do you restore betrayed trust? How do you restore a defiled bride? There is no money that can wipe that slate clean. There are real lasting consequences for adultery. And here Solomon says, you better, you better watch out. Solomon, Solomon says, as it were, 
I know from personal experience. Look, look what it did to his own family household with his father's adultery. Even as Solomon himself is uh, the recipient and the fruit of an adulterous relationship. Yet he says, he's, he says, look, I, I know the consequences of this bears. This lasts long, long after the fact. It can last an entire lifetime. Even if that sin is forgiven by God, there are still lasting physical consequences that will send a ripple effect through the rest of one's natural life. I'm not saying these things as uh, a, uh, an attempt for us to look around and go, well, I haven't committed adultery today, so I must be doing pretty good. This is given as a sober warning to each and every one of us. Tomorrow is a new day filled with new temptations. And tomorrow, just like today, is the day to take heed and to stand and be careful how we take heed so that we might not fall like those around us have fallen. Here is a call to arms. Here is a call to sobriety of thought, not to let our imaginations run wild even for a millisecond. Because the battle stands or falls in the heart. Think what James writes, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In one sense, the woman who seduces the man, and by the way, we can easily turn the tables, the man who seduces the woman. On one hand, there is a certain guilt that lies with the seductress or the seducer. And yet at the same time, it's not wholly their fault either. Because we see the one who's being enticed, there's a, there's a wolf of volition that's taking place. As one is enticed and led away, as James says, by his own desires. And so we must learn to stand guard that we not be swept away in the coming flood. That desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Therefore, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And we might look and think, well, that's no big deal. Perhaps that's just one piece of wisdom among a whole host of wisdom and begin and people begin to speak of God's will and plan for their lives. And they, they speak of God's will in terms of self-fulfillment and fulfilling their own desires. And yet, as we continue to hear and place under ourselves under the authority of God's word, we hear time and time again that God's will for us is very clear. It is spelled out in his moral law. Even as we pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, let it begin with me. Yet Paul himself writing to the church of Thessalonica says, this is God's will for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. First Corinthians. When confronted with sexual temptation, you are to run. Run as fast as you can. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual sin in one sense is different because when it comes to sexual sin, you are sinning against your own body as well. Here is a sober reminder for us to heed the voice of wisdom and to keep these words so that we too may be kept safe from sudden destruction. And yet, at the same time, we live in a world, even within the context of the church, where you might be looking back on past actions and behaviors 
and you say, I've, I've already failed in this area. I failed so many times. To one extent or another, you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and you recognize how deep the charge of adultery goes. And you say, how can I ever be free from this? I want you to be reminded of Paul's own words to the church of Corinth, a church that was beset with much sexual immorality, even as he warns them soberly that the sexually immoral will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet, he follows up by saying this as well, and such were some of you. But you have been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sexual sin is a gross Malevolent sin that destroys families, destroys one's soul, but it is not the unpardonable sin. There, too, is found grace for the adulterer. There, too, forgiveness is found for the adulteress, where the Lord has promised to wash us clean and to restore us to his good graces, even if we have to bear those temporal punishments and consequences throughout the course of our own lives. We read the story of David, and that was true for him. Psalm 51 is David's prayer for forgiveness when he has committed gross sexual sin. Not just sexual immorality, not just adultery, but also uh, premeditated murder. And there was forgiveness found for him. But he still had to reckon with earthly consequences. But he was able to do so with humility and grace, because he knew that he was right with, the, with his Savior. Here, we are called to heed wisdom's call to keep the heart so that we do not fall into that trap, so that we do not make our life a shipwreck or a shipwreck of the families in which to, into which we have been married or raised up or brought in. Would it not be so much better to heed wisdom's call before it is too late? And that is Solomon's call to us. Because this is inspired scripture, that is God's call to us to heed the voice of wisdom, to keep it so that we too, by wisdom, might be kept.